Today we'll be in James chapter 1, verses 9 through 18. So let's hear God's word together today. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Amen. You can be seated. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the chance now to come before your word. We're humbled, God, that you would have given the grace of just speaking to us. What a privilege that is. God, may we not take that for granted. May we have eyes to see. May we have ears to hear what you would have for us to hear today. God, grant us eyes of faith. Grant us a heart that has been made alive today, God. May we see in a fresh way the way you are speaking into us, that we may follow you. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So many times in life it seems that uh, having the right perspective is crucial, is it not? The same thing we may see if we just see it from a different perspective often changes quite a bit. Maybe you start off your day sometimes and things just, uh, you have just a bad morning. You ever just, just bad morning? Spill the coffee, get cut off on the way to work, traffic jam at work, whatever it is on, on your way to work, and you just start off and the whole day is just blah, frustrated. Ever happened to you? Every now and then you start off that day and then you come in contact with somebody who's in a much worse situation. Somebody who's just got a really tough diagnosis from the doctor or somebody who's lost a loved one. And all of a sudden that, you know, five minutes late that you were to work, that little bit of coffee on your pants, it just doesn't seem like that big of a deal. And it never was that big of a deal. It's just you had to have some perspective, right? Amber had a student recently who was just having a bad day. Just she couldn't get him to cooperate, couldn't get him to do anything, just... Not, not focused. And she was like, what in the world is going on with this kid? And later on found out that his mom was having major surgery like during that time while she, he was in class. And she's like, why didn't you, know, why didn't you tell me? But, but it makes sense now, a little bit at least, why this kid was not paying attention. So many times with our kids, I don't know if you see this with your kids, they're acting out and you're like trying to figure out what is going on. You start going through the checklist like, did they sleep enough last night? Okay, yeah, they slept enough. Have they had enough you know, uh, interaction with adults and kids? Have they played enough? Okay, yeah. And you're like, oh, wait. We're an hour late on dinner. Food, food, that's the thing. If we just, I understand their actions, I get perspective, I just need to get some food in their bellies. I will say for moms, you are the ones who figure that out so often. I never figure those kind of things out. So thank you moms for putting up with us uh, and for figuring out the perspective of our lives and helping us through that. We appreciate you uh, as moms. So many times in life, seeing the big picture, seeing, seeing things in right perspective, seeing reality, makes all the difference. Last Sunday, we started in the book of James, which is a very short, concise, and yet powerful, punchy 
book that speaks wisdom and truth into our lives uh, today. And so as we uh, start on this series, just beginning in, last week we saw that these trials we face, the things that we go through that are hard, they have a purpose. And as he carries that theme through the rest of this chapter, really through the whole book, but especially this first chapter, uh, he adds here uh, in, in the second part of, of James chapter 1 that in our trials, how important it is to have the right perspective, to have the right perspective. Everyone goes through trials. Everybody goes through hardships, some small, some big. And an important part of going through that is to have God's vantage point on your perspective, on, on the trials. If you see things from God's perspective, it can make a world of difference. Today, I, I want to be able to give you three angles, three different views from God's perspective in our trials. And these are things you could not get from a purely human view, a purely worldly view. You could not see your trials this way. These are God-given. These are given by the Lord. And so I pray that we can see trials not just human way, but in God's way. We might compare this to standing at the bottom of a mountain and all you can see around you is forest. All you can see is trees. But if you can climb up the mountain, if you can take the trail up a little bit, you notice there's a, there's a mountain, snowy peak out in the distance, and it's reflecting off a lake that's beautiful, and it's flowing over a dam that's got a beautiful river flowing. All those beautiful sights were around you all along when you were at the bottom of the mountain, but you couldn't see it because you're at the bottom. You didn't have perspective, but if we can climb up, we can see it. So let's let James be our, our trail guide, so to speak, today. Let him, let us take let him let us take us up the mountain so we can see things from God's perspective, especially over the trials in our lives. From God's point of view, we can see the Christian, a person who knows the Lord, that we can go through trials better if we can see our, the Christian's future, present, and past. Future, present, and past. That's what I want to take you through today. So I'll start with, his, with our future. When we view our trials from God's perspective, Christians can see our future glory, our future glory. James 1.12, in the middle of the passage we just read, says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. From the outset this morning, I want to encourage you that whatever tunnel you get in, <laughs> there's a light at the end of it, if you know the Lord. There is hope for the future. There is a glorious future ahead for all those who know the Lord. There is a promise for all Christians about our eternity. And that has a tremendous impact on how we face today, does it not? He says in this that we will face, that when we get to heaven, when we at the end, when we persevere through this life, we will get a crown of life. Revelation 2.10, Jesus speaks that, uses that same word, same phrase, speaking to the church in Smyrna, which facing, was facing all kinds of persecution and poverty, not all that different from what James was facing. He says, you will be tested. He says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. As Christians, it is an encouragement. It is a blessing to us to know that whatever you're going through, it will pass. It may not pass as fast as you want it to. It may not pass how you want it to. But we can, if we can zoom up the mountain, if we can go up the mountain and we see things from God's perspective, our life is short. Our life is temporary. Eternity is forever. And what God offers us is a crown, a crown of life. We, if we know there's a reward, if we know there's something at the end, we'll keep going. The sea may be bumpy, but if there's paradise, we'll stay the course and we'll keep going. 
Kids will eat their vegetables if they know there's a dessert at the end. We know there's something good to come. We know what the end entails. And so we can stay on the course today. What, what is the reward, this, this crown of life? I think James has in mind here the same thing that Paul described. 1 Corinthians 9.25 says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. And the word for wreath there is the same word for crown here in James. It's because of the idea of the old, old times, the old ancient games. If they won, you perhaps you remember these from the Olympics, different times. They've imitated this. You know, they, they take some kind of uh, branches and, and, and leaves and different things and form it into a wreath that's a crown. It symbolizes you won. You made it to the end. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 says, hey, the, we, we run to get something that doesn't go away. That wreath is made out of leaves. It's going to eventually just disintegrate, right? But the wreath we get, the crown we get is eternity, an eternal Life. That's what I think James is talking about here. When you face trials, past, present, future, whatever you're going to see, it's good news to know we have an eternity, a life with Christ that's still to come. It reminds us that we can keep going. We can keep going on in our life knowing that that is what's ahead. As Christians, we know if we can see things from God's perspective, we can see the future, if we can see eternal life, that impacts how we persevere now. So that's where I want to go. That's, that's the present. The future, future glory. Now, when we view our trials from God's perspective, Christian, as Christians, we can see our present perseverance. Our present perseverance. And there are so many different angles to this. I'm gonna, I, just, I can't get to all of them, but so many good things here. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. James is encouraging us to stick with the Lord. Stick with Him. Don't give up. You may be facing all kinds of persecutions or pains, sicknesses or sorrows. And James just encourages you, comes alongside you, says, Hey, you see what's out in front? Keep going today. One step in front of another. One foot in front of another. Don't give in to temptation. Don't crack under the weight of whatever you're feeling. Don't, don't buckle. How is that possible? How is it possible for a Christian not to give in? He reminds us of what we love most. As Christians, you know what we love most? It's not our comfort, it's not our ease, not simplicity, it's the Lord. It's the Lord. He's who we love most. That again, verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who... How's he going to finish that sentence? How's he going to finish it? He could have said, what we said, James 1.3 says, when we're thinking that God tests our faith and produces steadfastness. So our faith is what gets stronger. So he could have said faith. He gives the crown. Who, who gets the crown? The person of faith, right? Well, yes, that is true. That's not what he says here. Oh, verse 12, he could have said, uh, you remain steadfast, you get the crown because you remain steadfast. Is that what he says? Well, I mean, that's true again. But what he says is the person who gets the crown is the one God has promised to those who love him. And I think that's really important because what he's doing is helping us understand what faith is what steadfastness is. Faith is not just a mental acknowledgement that something happens. Belief in the Bible is not just, I know facts. Belief in the Bible is always with your heart. He says, the people that get the crown, the people who have that light at the end of the tunnel, the people who have the eternal reward, are the people who genuinely love the Lord. Listen, you know what heaven is? It's being with God. If that's not good to you, you don't want it, and you're not going to get it. God's, he's saying the people that get the crown are the people who love the Lord. 
That crown is promised to everybody who loves the Lord. If they don't love the Lord, you don't want to be there anyway. God says, okay, you don't have to be there. First, uh, 2 Timothy 4.8, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, Paul says, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. Man, did you love it when God came to earth? Do you love that Jesus came? Do you love that he died for your sins? Do you love that he resurrected? Do you care about him? You see the desire of your heart. He says there's a crown waiting for all those who love him, who have faith, who persevere. Perseverance then is, is more than just sticking to it, oh, just grinding your teeth. It's, it's relying on the Lord. It's leaning on him. It's loving the Lord, loving walking with the Lord as we go. We love him now. It helps us persevere through our present trials. We can say, hey, come what may, I've got the Lord. The Lord's got me. I'm walking with the Lord and he's walking with me. I can persevere through the trials because I'm walking with Jesus. That's how we make it. It's because we love him and he is with us. Some of those trials include not just, uh, you know, kind of things that happen out there to us, but temptations and sin itself. That's one of the trials he takes up in verses 11 to 13. When we face trials and struggles of sin, one way of, of mishandling, of not persevering according to God's path, one of the, the temptations we may face is say, we blame it on God. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Our trials are never because God is tempting us. God does not tempt. He can't. He's righteous. He's holy. He's perfect. He cannot try to lead you astray. He is holy. He tests us, absolutely. He puts us through trials that make us stronger. He, he intentionally guides our life in such a way that feels uncomfortable for our ultimate good. But He does not lead us to evil. He does not tempt us to sin. So we say, okay, well then who is the tempter? Why, why, where does the temptation come from? It doesn't come from God. And we, our, our reaction would be, okay, it comes from the devil. And that is true. But that's not where James points the finger on this, in this case. Verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. James wants to make sure we don't get off pointing the finger at somebody else. Can't point it at God, and the devil, of course, is responsible. He, he's bad. He's evil. But James wants to make sure that we point the finger at ourselves too. Make sure we see our sin, our temptation. Sometimes we are the victim of bad circumstances, but we can't live our whole lives as if everything that ever happens bad is because somebody did something to us. Sometimes the sin is in our hearts. The desires are in our hearts are evil. And he warns us of where that goes. He warns us of the path this leads down. You see this multiple times in James where he, he draws a path for you. See where you are at the beginning to see where it goes. And here's one of those cases. Verse 15, the desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it's fully grown brings forth death. Sinful desires make sin which leads to death. He said, don't go down that path. That's not where you want to go. This isn't the trajectory you want to be on in life. So stop at the beginning. See your desires for what they are and do not follow them. Jump off the path here. When you see the desire to something that is against God's will, stop there. Don't continue down that path. That may seem obvious to you as I say that, but let me just tell you that is completely countercultural today. It is completely countercultural for your desires to be something that you evaluate and that you uh, to try to discern whether they are good or bad. 
many people uh, smarter than me ha have noticed a dramatic shift in our culture just within the last generation, and they've put a term to it that just sounds nerdy. So I don't, I don't even know if this is helpful to you, but they call it expressive individualism. Isn't that a good term? As cultural psychology, I don't understand it fully. But here's the, the idea is right. The idea is, is helpful for me to see this is the water we're swimming in. In today's culture, our desires are not seen as something to be questioned or evaluated. In today's culture, the secular thinking is that your desires have to be expressed because they are the root of who you are. They say, if you feel something, you need to express that. Be true to yourself. How many different cultural you know, terminologies go along that, that line? You know? um, no right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go. Right? Do what you want to do. Don't let anything hold you back. Whatever's in your heart, you pursue that. And that will lead you to a good and successful, fulfilling life. doesn't matter where those desires, according to the Bible, are good or bad. Otherwise, no, your, your heart, your desires are the thing that decides right or wrong. That's, what the, that's the water we're swimming in in our culture. I don't know if you noticed that, but start realizing that it's everywhere. It's everywhere we go. Who you want to marry, who you want to be. It, the determining factor is the desire in your heart. That's a secular way of thinking. It is newly popular. It's been around for a long time. But the Bible warns us of how, how destructive that can be. Many times in the Bible, over and over again, it points to our hearts are not a place of holiness. They're not a place of life. They're a place of sin and destruction. And here's one of them. Your desires lead to sin, which leads to death. If you follow your heart all the time, it's going to lead you off a cliff, not to joy. So many times the world says, just follow your heart and there's where you find happiness. No, no, no. That's where it leads to death. Sometimes the desires are good. More often than not, though, they don't lead us where we need to go. Be warned about the temptation to follow your own desire. That's one way to see. Our, there's, there's, a, there's a temptation, a, a trial of this life that we've got to see from up on the mountain to see God's perspective so that we can persevere and resist temptation. Another trial that he mentions, you got to see in the present world, the world we're living in, are material things. How we handle material things. Man, that's a temptation in our world today. The world sizes and measures up how you are in life by how much stuff you got, or at least how much you appear to have, right? Your net worth is like your scorecard in the world so many times. And God says that is dangerous. Verse 11, 9 through 11 speak to the reality that, that some Christians are well off financially and others are not. And yet we live as one body, one family in all kinds of different situations. And temptations could come in either camp. Whether you got a lot or not a lot, temptations can come at you. How do you persevere? How do you see your material stuff from God's perspective? Well, if a Christian doesn't have a whole lot financially... One temptation they may face is to feel lowly, to feel like they don't have a whole lot. He says uh, in verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Boast, and you say, how can I, if I don't have anything, what is there for me to exalt about? Well, he's saying the material, it's not, the exaltation is not material. He's saying as a Christian, do you know what you have? Do you know what you have as a Christian? Caitlin read for us Jeremiah 9, let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. Doesn't matter what's in your bank account. If you know Jesus, you have an infinite riches, an infinite wealth that is far beyond any billionaire of the world today. Do you know that? 
If your temptation is you don't have a lot in this world and you feel just beat up, like you're not a success, like you're not making it in the world, he's reminding you, Christian brother or sister, you have an eternity of wealth, an incredible inheritance that's ahead of you. And you get to know the God of, the God who, the Bible, the Psalms talk about God owning a cattle on a thousand hills, which I think is a funny way of him saying, he's got all the wealth he needs. He built all the galaxies and he's your, he's your father. He's who you're going to inherit from. Don't beat yourself up that you're so downtrodden because you don't have a lot in this world. You're infinitely rich. You know God. In the same way, the rich can be tempted from the other direction, can't they? If you have a little more off, if you're a little more well off financially, your temptation might come from saying, I got enough and I don't need God. So he says, let the rich boast in his humiliation. So the temptation might be to say, I, I'm just focused on making the next dollar. I'm padding my account. I feel good about myself because I, I can do all this on my own. And so James advises the, the rich to boast in his humiliation. And just like the poor man's exaltation was not material, neither is the rich man's humiliation. No, he is reminding the rich man, you know what you have? You know what you can give to God to save yourself? Nothing. You know what you contributed to your salvation? With all your bank accounts, all your stock markets, all your houses at the beach and lake. You know how much of that adds to your relationship with the Lord? Not a bit. Not a bit. We need to realize that spiritually, we are not millionaires. We're not spiritual millionaires. On our own spiritually, we are bankrupt. We have nothing to give God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. When we recognize, when we recognize our humiliation, that we cannot give something to God, then that's where we find truth. We are needy and poor. So James is advising both the rich and the poor to avoid the temptations. You know, one of the trials you're going to face, just like you face sickness or persecution, just like you face struggles with your own sinful desires, one of the temptations is how you handle material things of the world. And so he says, for all of us, we are spiritual beggars. We are humiliatingly poor because of our sin. And yet God has given us an infinite inheritance, riches beyond all com uh, comprehension in him. The world won't see that. The world's at the bottom of the mountain. Look around the forest and see who's got the most trees or the most whatever. But if we can climb the mountain, we can say, this is how God views our spiritual things. To paraphrase a, something Tim Keller says a lot, he says, uh, spiritually, we are, we are more humiliated than we could ever imagine. But we, for those who know Jesus, we are far more exalted than we could have ever hoped. Far more exalted. Keeping the right perspective in our spiritual state requires right thinking, right knowledge, right understanding. And most importantly, the right thinking about God himself. We've hinted at this all the way through, but I want to focus on and see if, show you a few ways that the right thinking about God is how we persevere, how we make it through life. Do you truly know God as who He is? When we climb the mountain, the thing we want to see most is God Himself. We follow God at the mountain, we want to see Him. And James just gives us some beautiful descriptions of who God is. How are you going to keep going through the trials in life? How are you going to weather the storms of navigating material things and sicknesses and persecution and desires? And you're going to keep your eyes focused on God. That's how. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And again in verse 16 and 17, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good, and every, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Anything good you get is from God. Do you know that? Do you know that he is the one who has given good things into your life? 
He is the one who gave it to you. We praise Him for that. God is fully, completely, 100% pure and righteous. He has never done anything evil to you. He is good and He can be trusted. You know, so many times when I, I see people, and I, I see this myself too, when we go through hard things, some people maybe are tempted to, to think God's not in control or that God can't stop whatever. I, I don't see that as often though. I don't see many people who, when they go through something really challenging, they say, I don't think God has the power to get rid of this cancer or do this thing. I don't hear that. They don't, we don't doubt His power. We doubt His goodness. We doubt, will He do the thing that I think He should do? We think our evaluation of good is better than God's, and so we come to God and we say, if you are truly good, God, here's the list of the things you're going to do. And we lay that before God and say, here's the test, God. If you're, are you going to pass the test? I know you can, but will you? And we're the one that makes the test. We decide what's good and bad. Instead, we come to God's word and we say, God says he's good. He's, he's not the one struggling with temptation. He's not the one wrestling with right and wrong. We are. And so we come to God submitting to him, saying he, trusting him that he really is good. He really does love us and he really will care for us and lead us through as he intends to lead us. That can be hard, but we trust ultimately that he is good. Verse 17 continues, Every good and perfect gift is from God above, coming down from the Father of lights. Father of lights is a reference to the one who created the lights in the sky. And the reference to a shadow helps us understand that. So he's talking about the moon, the stars, and the sun. The reference to, he's, he's saying, the one who created the Father of lights. He's reminding you, the one we're talking to is the creator of the world. He's good, and he has so much power. He has so much power. God has all the power, all the wisdom, to put everything in perfect orbit around the world. He has, has taken this ball of dirt and wrapped it in an orbit around the sun in just the perfect way so that it all measures out with all of atmosphere and everything that we need to do for seasons and temperatures. And yet we come to God sometimes wondering, can you handle this? If he's in charge of the lights in the sky, he's in charge not just of the lights in this building, he's in charge of the lights of the universe, we can trust him. He's the father of lights. And when he says about them, he's the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. What he's saying is, the one who put that sun in the sky from your direction, east is this way, yeah. It goes this way, you know, and the shadow all day long. What's that shadow do? It changes. You know what God never does? Change. He never changes. You want a $2 theology word to use at lunch today? God is immutable. He doesn't change. He cannot be mutated. He doesn't change. He never, ever changes. The same God who inspired these words 2,000 years ago is the same God who is alive and at work today. And the same one who was at work before the foundation of the world. We all know people who when they get around a certain crowd of people, they act one way and they go another way and they act a different way, right? At work, they act like this. At home, they act like this. At church, they act like this. At home, they act like you know, you know how this happens all the time. And we do this. Depending on how much coffee I've had, I talk faster, you know? We all change. You know what God never does? Change. Never, ever changes. If you're going to trust God, that's an essential part of understanding who God is. You know why? Because if, if God changed, when you came to him in your time of need, what if you caught him in a bad day? What if you caught him having a bad attitude? What if he hadn't had enough coffee yet? It would be impossible to trust him fully if he changed. But he's never moody. He's never inconsistent. 
He does not change. He's the Father of lights that change, and He Himself never changes. No variation, no shadow of change. Which brings us one last thing He says about God. If you're going to persevere through trials, you see this about Him. He's our Savior. He's our Savior. And we see that in a way that He talks about our past. So this comes to our last point. When we view our trials from God's perspective, Christians can see our past regeneration. Our past regeneration. I know I already gave you one theology word calling God immutable, but this is the one you really need to know. Regeneration. When we speak of somebody's conversion to Christianity, we're talking about our our perspective. I responded to a call and I put my faith in Jesus. Regeneration is the other side. It's God's way of viewing what happens when we come become a Christian. And if I lost you anywhere, stick with me on this one because this is worth knowing. Verse 18, of His own will... He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. I I read the ESV and and preach from the ESV because it is a a word-for-word translation. It sticks really close to the original language. But sometimes that can can be a little confusing. Brought us forth. What does that mean? Well, NIV says, uh, give us birth. NLT says, give birth. CSB says, He gave us birth. So what he's talking about here is that if you are a Christian, you've been born twice. You were born physically into this world, and then spiritually you have been reborn. This is what Jesus told Nicodemus. He said, you must be born again. Nicodemus said, how can I enter again into my mother's womb? That doesn't make sense, Jesus. He said, no, 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 you got this all wrong. you got to be born from above. you got to be born of the Spirit. You have to be given new life. And that new life, that is regeneration, that you have been given New life in Christ. That is your new birth. That is God must regenerate, give new life to your heart. How does that happen? It says, of His own will, God brought us forth. This was God's idea. This was God's doing. God is the one who changed your life. God is the one who transformed you. Spiritually, you know what a spiritually dead person can do to save themselves? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. But God in His miraculous power can bring dead hearts to life. God in His miraculous power can take somebody who cannot breathe and bring them to life. That is what we rejoice in and that's what we celebrate as we celebrate salvation. God brought us forth and how does He do that? How did He bring us out uh, to life? It says He brought us forth by the word of truth. The word of truth. That that phrase shows up a few times in the Bible like Colossians 1, 5, and 6. You have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you. How does God bring people to new life? How does God's spirit bring them to life? He proclaims the gospel to them. He tells them the good news. He tells them what he has done for us. And that is how he brings us to life by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you are a Christian, this has already happened to you. Whether or not you could explain it, whether or not you knew the word regeneration. If you are a Christian, the only way you have saving faith The only way you have a relationship with the Lord is that God brought you out of a grave and into life. Do you know that? And the the way he did that is that he proclaimed the gospel to you. That may have been on a Sunday sermon. It may have been sitting around a table with family. It may have been in a friend's house, whenever. The only way you can have saving faith is if God brought you from death to life when he proclaimed the gospel to you and the Spirit applied that to your heart and brought you to life. That's the only way. Somebody somewhere, if you're a Christian, told you the gospel. And they may have started all the way back in creation. And they may have told you that God, the one God over all the world, created the universe 
And when he did, he created male and female, humanity, in his image to enjoy a relationship with him, to enjoy being with him and living for his glory. And they may have told you that pretty soon after that, we rebelled against God. Adam and Eve rejected God and chose what they wanted. And we, for every generation, everybody ever since then, have done the same thing. We have rejected God. We have lived for ourselves and not for Him. We are a fallen people. We are sinful. We have rejected God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We do not live like we were called to live. But if somebody was preaching the gospel to you, they would have told you, God, and all of His infinite mercy and grace, took an incredible step, and he sent his son into the world. You see, our sin against God, because God is infinite, our sin was infinite. Because God is eternal, our sin was eternal. The only way that we could pay for our sin is an infinite and eternal debt. For all the rest of eternity, we should be paying off that debt. And so the only way we could be saved is that an infinite, eternal being, God himself, paid for our sin. Jesus came and he lived the perfect life, the only person to have ever lived on this earth and not sinned. And yet he went to the cross to pay that infinite, eternal debt that you and I should have paid. That's what he did on the cross. And he went into the grave. And on the third day when he rose, he defeated sin and death forever. And he has made a way now for everybody who believes in him to have the life that he had and that he has with the Father. We can have a relationship with him if we turn from our sins and believe in Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian... Somebody's proclaimed that to you before. And you said, yes, I believe. Not on the power of your own strength, but because the Spirit was at work in your life to bring you to life. You were dead and now you have been made alive. That's what it means to be a Christian. You have been regenerated. You have been brought forth by the word of truth. And I'll tell you, if that's in your past, if that's who you are, if that's what God has done in your life, you could persevere through any trial today. Because you've got Jesus, not just out there, in here. The Holy Spirit is in you. The Spirit of Christ is in you, helping you march on this life to a future glory, persevering through anything you may see in this life. If you're a Christian, that has already happened to you. You have been regenerated. I've been speaking mainly to Christians because that's who James wrote to this to. But I hope that today, if you're not a Christian, you've heard the gospel. I've told you that if you're a Christian, you've already heard that message, and we need to be reminded of that message over and over again. But if you are not a Christian, that means your heart has not been regenerated. If you have not been brought to life, then you can't be looking forward to the light at the end of the tunnel because you're not there yet. That crown is reserved for all who love Him. If you don't love the Lord, there's no crown. There's no guarantee of you persevering because you don't yet know Him. There's no regenerated heart in your past. There is no Savior walking with you in the present. There is no crown for eternity if you don't yet know the Lord. But you can know Him. You can know Him. You can believe in Christ. You can believe in what He's accomplished for you. And you can have a relationship with Him forever. Forever. If you say, I, I see my desires and how they lead me astray and they lead me to death. And I don't want to follow that anymore. I, I want to follow Jesus. I see this, that this is a better way. Following the creator of the world, the one who doesn't change, the one who put all the lights in, into the universe in place, the one who sent his son, I want to follow him. I tell you the good news is that that desire in your heart didn't even come from you. It came from the spirit at work in your life. And if he began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion. He will save you. 
If you don't yet know him, trust in him today. Maybe you want to come pray that with me after the service. Maybe you want to grab somebody around here that seems to know what they're talking about when they're talking about Jesus. You want to say, I, I got some questions about this. Because let me tell you, James is written to Christians. I would say the, the whole book, without, without verse 18, is, or you know, the, what it represents, wouldn't make sense. Because all the trials that you can persevere through, all the eternity, all the wisdom, it only is promised to those who have new life, to those who have been regenerated. So today, I, I pray that's you. I pray that's you. And if you don't know him, I pray that you would follow the Spirit's leading today and you would trust in him. If he has given you new, new life, like he has for so many of you today, he has regenerated you. He has guaranteed your future glory. So you know what's possible? You can persevere through any trial today because he's with you. He's got you. And he's promised an eternity with you.